Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. We're back with Larry, of course, talking about friendship. And before we get to more of these sparkling and interesting personalities, self-esteem and friends versus narcissism. Let's explain that because you talk about that in in some detail. This has to do with uh, my uh, memoir uh, that's coming out later this year. Uh, Right now, I'm involved in a a book I wrote that's coming out next month um, called Intimate Conversations uh, Face-to-Face with matchless musicians, and uh, I'll talk about that in this segment uh, because we start off with Matthew O'Coin. Mm-hmm. But as far as uh, friendship being the blessing of my life, uh, and it appears, of course, in the title of the memoir, um, existential, uh, existentially, because I think that uh, friendship and inquisitiveness and maturation are the keynotes of my, my own life. So let's talk about uh, – so part of that, I started off that section on friendship by talking about self-esteem and friends versus narcissism. Now, we can think of people in the world today um, who are perfect examples of narcissism and uh, narcissism undiluted by anything else. Um, And uh, I don't even have to go into names uh, to know some of the people uh, that we might be talking about. There are other people that are full of themselves as well. Um, I, you know, I, I could lay claim to that. I could say that uh, you know me well enough, uh, Jordan, to know that I like the limelight. Um, I guess uh, Charlie Chaplin did. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> the greatest, Very good. The greatest comedian uh, of our time. Uh, and, um, you know, we talked a little about Ben Zander before. You said you spoke to him this week. I've been communicating with him extensively this week. Now, Ben Zander is, uh, and I'll say why a little later, is an absolutely wonderful person. But some people accuse him of being narcissistic um, because he's he thinks well of himself and he lets you know that. But there's nothing wrong with that in the case of a guy like Ben Zander because unlike people who have nothing to back it up with, he has everything to back mm. it up with. And if other musicians are a little envious of him as they have been, it's because they can't match the stuff he does. Right. And when I first saw Ben Zander, I thought, well, this guy really is full of himself. What a pain in the ass he is. <laughs> um, and he gave this talks before everybody loved his talks before the concerts. And I said, oh, I've heard this stuff before. I've read it. Come on, let's get out of here. And we'll come back for the concert because he's a wonderful conductor. But since then... I've changed my view because I've gotten to know him, absolutely, because I think he's one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. Well, well, let me just jump in here and remind the audience uh, who we're talking about, because Ben Zander is, is the conductor and musical director of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. And uh, he, I think part of the issue might just be the way he sounds. He speaks with his beautiful, cultured British accent, and that sometimes puts people off. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's It's actually... An air of confidence that he has and the love and passion for what he does. That doesn't strike me and you either as narcissistic, unbridled. It's more comfort level in what he's doing and and happy to 
to be the guy to go to on that score. Well, passion is the is is something that uh, Ben Zander has to a fairly well, and also he not only is the conductor of that orchestra, but allied with it is the is the uh, Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra. Yes, and his work with young people, whether at the conservatory before that or now with the orchestra, is exemplary and amazing. And I've heard concerts where. You can't really distinguish between them and a major symphony orchestra. Now, he's a little younger than you. He's in his early 80s. He's still traveling with the youth orchestra around the world. Oh, yeah. He's not stopping and not slowing down. And I think, uh, talk with me about that. If people sometimes get a little bit envious and, and call someone a narcissist when they see somebody at your age or his age, Doing exactly what they want to do and living life to the fullest and all that. Do you do you buy into that theory that some people might be more envious and hence find him to be standoffish or narcissistic? Well, I think envy has something to do with it. I mean, because people people make a big deal about people who talk about themselves or make it clear that they think what they're doing is a great thing or a good thing and uh, think well of themselves. And I think that that is it, – it, it is possible to, to find somebody who talks about themselves uh, to be uncomfortable about with that person. But a lot of times uh, – uh, most times uh, that people don't distinguish between that as a hollow uh, aspect of a person because, as I said before, they don't have a lot to back it up with, maybe nothing, uh, as opposed to a person who does. Now, if a person does – I said all, all of that to me seems petty. Mm-hmm. I think attention should be paid to what they do. And that's – there are there are a lot of people who are modest, great people. Rand Blake. Take Rand Blake. I mean he's, he's a modest guy and he's an unbelievable pianist, creator, educator, everything. He's a polymath. So that, you know, one size does not fit all. I got two stories that I want to share with you, and you'll appreciate this. Uh, one of them involves another great pianist, a jazz pianist named Dave McKenna. Are you familiar with Dave yeah. McKenna? Greatest left hand of all time. He's passed on. And one day, this was about 30 years ago, we were at the Copley Plaza Hotel, and there was an event. And I was part of the event uh, planning, and he walked in and said, Hi, I'm the pianist you guys ordered. The pianist you guys ordered. He's one of the most respected arts. And the other one has to do with uh, comedians. Many of the comedians I know, there's one named Lenny Clark who's phenomenal. He's a national figure. He's been on TV shows nationwide. And he will come into an audition and say, I'll just sit here and wait for everybody else. No rush. You know, he's not put me at the head of the line. So I love that about certain people, you know. But I also don't have a problem with people who, as you say, have that air of success and and want to showcase it. Well, as I said, you know, um, so I, in this uh, little couple of paragraphs, couple of pages, where I talked about self-esteem and friends, I distinguished between narcissism being one thing and self-esteem. There's nothing wrong with knowing who you are mm-hmm. and friends. And a narcissist doesn't make friends particularly. I mean, why would a narcissist have friends. Why would they need friends? They know everything. Right. Or they'll say they have a million friends, but are they really the kind of no, friends we're I talking mean, about? Putin, does he have friends? No, not now, certainly. Do, do some of our local great people? I no, mean, no, you're right. I mean, yeah. So self-esteem and friends, what, what is that? Well, a person who is has self-esteem, who is really not a narcissist, and he is quite capable of making friends, 
And um, I would say that over the course of time, maturation is one of the titles in my book. I think I've matured. And as I've matured, if I ever boarded on narcissism, I, I don't know that I ever did, but I was closer to it earlier than I am now. I don't think I'm close to it at all. So, uh, but I've always been able to make friends, come to think of it, ever since I'm, because I'm still friendly with a lot of people from my youth. So that, uh, but I've, I've certainly uh, be, uh, gotten a better idea of who I am. So if you make friends, anything can happen. Mm. I mean, how did I get to know Guifu Wu? Because I was teaching him, I said, talk a little slower, Guifu. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, Michaela. I said, "Well, you're tall, Michaela, but uh, <laughs> talk down well, to me." Well, <laughs> a lot of a lot of what you do is something that a lot of people would wish they could do, and that's make an overture and and put yourself out there. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you just say, "Okay, that didn't work, so I'll move on." But in your case, you've been lucky. Some of these people, like Michaela. Well, I keep saying to Lois, who's sitting out <clears throat> there today, uh, right. waiting for us uh, to do this, um, I, I say to her. <laughs> That I don't know what it is. I said I talk to people, and there must be something in my face or my voice, or they seem all of them. None of them get angry, and none of them, you know, they laugh. And there's somehow I communicate to them friendliness, and they talk back to me, and it's so easy to connect with them. I think one of the things that you have going for you is something that I try to instill in my children and, and also in my students. That's the smile, the physical smile. If you approach somebody, as you do, Larry, hey, your arm's open. Let's get together. What do you want to talk about? It's a lot more uh, welcoming. I think you're a welcoming guy. And I, I, I'll, you can send the bill to your dentist if you want for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, the other day I was returning – Home. I was walking home from uh, a political meeting where I was talking with Mike Dukakis about about the, the book that uh, that uh, the one about musicians that we're going to talk about that I think could be used also for college courses because I've had it indexed really completely and there's a lot of subjects that I took up with these musicians that have to do with what goes on in their heads and what about music and do you hear music in your head and how do you create that could make it not only a book to be read for pleasure, but also a book to be read academically for professors all the way down to students and researchers. I hope that, I hope for that. But, um, so I'm walking home and I'm walking up Davis Avenue, which is right near the high school. And my house, is, my home is on the other side of the high school. So there was a guy there with an, another woman and a, I guess a dog. And I walked by and I said, hey, nice dog. So one thing led to another. And he said, we got into a conversation. And uh, he said, well, I, he said, and I told him about the book I was writing. And he told me that, oh, well, I'm a musician. I have a group. And maybe you'd like to listen to it. I said, sure. So that, um, uh, and we talked for about 10 minutes. And I said, my name is so, and I go, man. You can, you know, I, I, I gave him a card, I think, the one that has my baseball book with Hank Greenberg on it. <laughs> so um, next thing I know, I get a letter from him. Oh, it was so fun to meet you today. It was a lot of fun to meet you today. We had a great conversation. Here's how you can access some of the stuff that we've done, the music that I'm And he says, I'm going, when is your book coming out? I want to go buy it because it'll be very interesting. And uh, 
So I wrote to him. Uh, I think one of the things I said in my return letter was, hey, great to hear from you. I said, you know, you never know what the what a day is going to bring. You make friends all the time. There you go. Well, speaking of music and speaking of, we just mentioned Ben Zander, who's an incredible, uh, accomplished musician. But there's a younger gentleman that you wanted to talk about, Matthew O'Coin. And for those who grew up in the Boston area, uh, the name O'Coin is very familiar because of his dad, Don O'Coin, a writer for many years for The Globe and other publications. Well, you know, um, my favorite composer, and I have a lot of them, but my favorite composer, you know that, is Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It was a lot of fun to see that movie come out uh, some years ago. Amadeus, yeah. Yeah, that was a, that was a terrific movie. Sure was. And uh, with his uh, rival at the time, uh, the Italian uh, composer. Salieri, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, trying to get his, some of his scores from his... Wife, you remember? You might remember that scene, and then he looking at some of these scores of his, and saying, "My, oh God, uh, you know, I could never write anything like that." And of course, he couldn't. But in any event, uh, Matthew was called the Mozart of our time. Now, when I first met Matthew O'Coin, we connected immediately. We sat outside. Did I have to tell you this? I don't think so. No. So Matthew, Matthew's opera on Orpheus and Eurydice, which is a common theme down through the centuries for musical composers and and uh, uh, also uh, uh, playwrights and so forth. So, so that uh, Matthew's opera on the, that subject was played like six or seven times and featured by the Metropolitan Opera during December. And that same month, Matthew came out with his book on opera called The Impossible Art, which is going to go down as a, as a favorite musical text. Uh, not text, uh, because you can read it. Uh, you can be a layman and read it. There's not that much in it that's uh, so technical that it's hard to understand. So he is a polymath of the first order. His IQ probably is in the range of 160. And Matthew, but Matthew is a regular guy. I mean, you know, he's, he, he, he went to Harvard. He didn't take music over there, and, but he did conduct over there. He conducted a very famous... Um, uh, famous, uh, he conducted the Marriage of Figaro over there, and uh, the fellow who died recently uh, used to be the head of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra for many years until he got into trouble. Oh, James Levine. Yeah, James Levine was there, and later Matthew uh, worked at the Metropolitan Opera. But I, but what I'm saying is that he has continued to advance since then, uh, or since even before then to the present time, where he's now known around the world. In musical circles, he's a household name. And in other circles, he's also very well known as, uh, and I called him, I guess, in the title to my story, pianist. He does everything. He, he, he composes, he writes, uh, he's um, uh, socially uh, active. He has formed his own group called the... Uh, uh, AMOC, American Modern Opera Project, mm. um, and um, it's a. I've gone to some performances over in Cambridge. But the point I want to make about Matthew is that, as accomplished as he is and will be, uh, when we sat down uh, outside of uh, the Gardner Museum that first time, and I interviewed him for two hours, amid the odors of people coming by who were smoking weed and <laughs> dogs and this, that, and the other thing. 
we connected right away. Uh, you know, um, even though he's a brilliant guy and I'm not nearly as smart, on a personal level, we we understood practically immediately mm. that we were similar in outlook and how we felt about other people and life. And that's continued to this day. And we're still very friendly. We write to each other. And I'm very happy to have him as a friend. And uh, I think he's a wonderful guy. And I was, I was uh, speaking of Don O'Coin, I was communicating with him the other day um, about some, you know, uh, about getting some people at the Globe maybe to write about the book. Right. But in any event, um, Matthew, um, so here's a guy that uh, writes books, uh, composes operas, conducts operas, plays the piano, writes essays, um, polymath of the first order, uh, criticizes, writes uh, musical criticism, everything, everything. So I, when I approached him for the when I uh, approached him for the interview, I said, "Well, you know, Matthew, everybody knows this was like four or five years ago when he was like twenty-seven. I said everybody knows what you've done so far." I said, but let's think of it this way. Um, I'm now approaching 90, and you're approaching 30. Literally, there's 60 years between us. Obviously, if you live a long life, even if it's not as long as mine, but a long life, um, I'll be gone a long time. So what I want to talk about is who you are now and what the future may hold so that maybe somebody will pick up what I'm writing in this book about you because they're curious. So what the hell was this famous Matthew O'Coin, who I hear all the time and hear his music, what was he like when he was 28 or 29? And we approached the interview that way. And so, and I said, Matthew, not only that, I said, the more famous you become, the less you'll have time to talk to anybody. But we got two hours here uh, with the birds and the bees uh, flying around our heads. So let's Let's talk about that aspect that you might not have time to talk about. And he was so forthcoming. I, yeah. I can't think of a question I asked him. And I asked some pretty – I asked close questions, as you know, that he didn't answer. Well, I was just going to say, as an interviewer myself, uh, I've developed relationships with people based on the first interview because I realize there's depth there answering questions that I'm asking. It's a more forced setting. Uh, you know, it's a forced connection, you have an appointment, you're going to interview me, etc. And yet something beautiful can come out of it, as was the case with you and Matthew. I'll tell you what my approach to interviews are. I don't call them interviews. I don't think of them as interviews. And I don't want them to come off as interviews. You know, these people who are well-known, Matthew, other musicians, when they give interviews, the questions are usually by other people who are musicians mm. or know, uh, you know, usually musicians. And they ask things that a narrow having to do with the music or the maybe they're there because their uh, composition of theirs is being played that day. Well, I'm not a musician, so, um, you know, not literally, but I don't know a diminuendo from a fortissimo. So I don't ask them those questions. That right, I do ask them questions about music, but the questions about music are very searching. This has to do with any subject that I'm discussing with somebody who might not be a musician trying to get inside their heads. What makes them tick? How do they compose? Where do the ideas come from? And you're right. Uh, uh, somebody like Matthew, who's probably been interviewed a lot of times by people who want specific answers to musical questions that are very 
technical would probably find that enriching and uh, refreshing to talk about other things. Well, that's my whole idea in writing this book, Intimate Conversations Face-to-Face with Matchless Musicians. I have taken the position that a book is going to be very refreshing if if a layman is writing it about musicians because he the layman is going to approach it quite differently. And as I started to say, I don't think of them as interviews. I don't think of anything I do as an interview. I think of it as a conversation. And what I try, which is totally different. I mean, I don't take up a lot of their time, but an interviewer takes up maybe 3% or 5% of the time. It's not quite what's your name, but it's pretty close to that. That's an interview. I enter into the thing. I mean, with Matthew and I were talking that first time, I offered my own opinions of certain things and asked him, I might, have, I might say to him, well, you know, I think this and that. And he says, well, I think it was a conversation. Mm-hmm. And I want people to be feel as though they're looking over our shoulder. And people have said that to me, that they're, that they're looking over my shoulder and they're listening in on this conversation. Now, if somebody says that to me, I've, I'm ready to fly because, you know, I think that that's really what I want to create. And uh, not only does it create something that's worthy of reading, but, um, and uh, you know, and the, the foreword in this book is written by a major musical professor and musicologist, uh, John Graziano from SUNY in New York. And John writes that. He said these. He called them interviews, and I said, "Well, can I, can I change it?" In and I left it as interviews, but I said, "Here and here, can I change it to conversation?" He said, "Yeah, sure." Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, a pathway to developing a, a friendship. If people out there are listening who are starved for friendship, I'm not going to suggest it's easy, but get into a conversation that's more than just, "Hey, what do you think of the weather?" Uh, ask questions about people that you're really interested in. And curiosity is a beautiful thing. It, Inquisitiveness it, is it, what I... Yeah. I understand your point and your modus operandi, but it's got great benefits. Not only will we read about this guy, but this guy becomes your buddy just because you have so much to talk about. Well, absolutely. I mean, is anybody... You know, even if we hadn't become good friends, was Matthew... Was I... Or Matthew, going to forget a two-hour conversation that delved into his soul and in which I unburdened my own inner feelings. It's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's memorable in a, in, a, in a society that's so surface. It's really – and I love doing the same thing when I interview people or, pardon me, when I have conversations with people. Larry, we're going to hold it there because we have so much more to talk about and so many more subjects to – put into little files that people will just uh, enjoy uh, listening to. But thank you. Thank you so much for the conversation. Well, you know, one thing I'll say, Jordan, is that um, about our conversations is that, you know, I'm not the type of person who just lets somebody lead me where they want. Quite to the contrary. I mean, I like to be in control. I mean, that so that um, – but with you, I don't feel that way because uh, you know a lot about a lot of things. And I don't care where you take me because I know it's going to be a place that we both know something about and something's going to come out of it, which may even surprise us. 
which is your formula all along. And I'm just stealing from the Larry Rutman playbook. And it seems to be working just fine. Yeah, so I just put myself in your hands, and I'm perfectly happy with that. Well, I'm a doctor of recording, so you have nothing to worry about. And a doctor of conversations. (laughs) (laughs) This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on a life lived backwards, one man's life.